This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Attention BetMGM customers. Have a friend who loves sports as much as you do? Here's a chance for both of you to earn a $50 bonus when they sign up through BetMGM's Refer-A-Friend program. Just sign into your BetMGM account and click on the Refer-A-Friend program to send your friend a message inviting them to register a new account in the same state you use BetMGM in. Once your friend signs up and makes a deposit, they'll receive a $50 bonus. And once your friend places a bet with their bonus and the wager is settled, you'll receive a $50 bonus as well. Share the excitement and get a $50 bonus every time you refer a friend to BetMGM. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Ohio only. New and existing customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets. Bonus bets expire in 30 days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement. 
At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch, now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space. Just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. All right, it's time for another film study. The season's wrapping up, at least the regular season. So we're going to look back at Week 16's defensive performance tonight. Kemi Cusick, how are you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing good. I mean, besides the little cold front in Florida, but I mean, I can't complain about 60 degrees, right? <laughs> no, you cannot. It's actually hey. pretty warm here today, right? About 55, Michael? Yeah, yeah, it was nice out there today. Got out for a little walk. I enjoyed it. Sunday morning was a first for me. I had ice on my windows. First time since coming to Florida. There you go. So, but it's beautiful down here again. And I can't complain thanks to the uh, weather up in Maryland and watching some of these football games this weekend in the cold weather. It's doing okay. So joining us, uh, like he does often, is Michael Crawford. Welcome back, Michael. Hey, glad to be back. Thanks for having me on again, guys. I guess I'm a longtime caller. Long time guest, right? I can't say first time, first time call, long time listener, first time caller. I'm, I'm long time. We're thrilled to have you on him again, Michael. Always a pleasure to talk football. Uh, Twitter handle is at Abukari, A B U K A R I. That's right. it. Exactly right. There's a, there's a historical story that's worth trying to figure out from that, although he didn't spell it quite correctly intentionally, out of respect, I think. <laughs> but there is a historical story there if you have an interest in such things. And I'm sure Michael will will give you all the lowdown on it if you want to contact him on Twitter after you do a little research of your own. Michael, comfortable win they're coming off of here. Uh, huge relief from my perspective to have Destiny back in their own hands. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a roller coaster ride of emotions going back to the Saturday night game, right? The Dolphins and the Raiders and kind of all of the madness at the end of that game and looking like the Raiders were going to pull it out. And then Miami just snatches it right away there at the end and going into the Giants game. Um, I mean, you never know until they kick it off, but then obviously once they did, things did uh, go as, as we hoped as Ravens fans. And then just some of the other games that unfolded through the day, just couldn't, couldn't have asked for any more. No. And uh, we, we didn't really have the full story of what was going on on Cleveland. One of the things I keep Twitter closed during the game because we're scoring it and I don't want to get, get the game spoiled for me as we're a couple plays behind it. So we didn't get the we didn't get the information on all of these Browns receivers were sitting out the game with COVID in a game where they then eventually had to come back against the Jets. And obviously it wasn't a wasn't a very good situation where them. had their run game pretty well shut down by the Jets. And, you know, all of a sudden it's 20 to three and like, wow, what's going on? Yeah, kind of like you. I um I was I was focused on the Ravens game, but I, I do have Twitter open and I'm in a couple of, of groups and uh, some guys in there who, you know, multiple screens. Uh, they're on, uh, you know, NFL uh, Jesus <laughs> getting the live play by play update. So they're giving me all of the updates like as things are happening from like all the games. I'm like, wait a minute. How are you doing this? I'm just trying to watch the Ravens. But uh, it was keeping me in the know. So I appreciated that. But um uh, that Pittsburgh game, 
did not look like it was going to go very well in terms yeah. of the way that it started, but uh, they, they, they came through at the end there. All right. Lots to talk about today, but we'll hear from Josh first. All right. And before I do the my bookie, I fixed our audio problem. I had my speakers on the desk turned on as well as my headphones on, which was causing the feedback we were struggling through pre-show. They so don't call him the best producer in the business for nothing. Sometimes the problem's on my end as well. <laughs> but let's talk about my bookie because I did well with my bookie this weekend and you've got the chance too. They were giving stuff away all Christmas. So now's the time to get on to see what the promotions are and what's ongoing for New Year's this weekend. And when you head on over to MyBookie and use your deposit, or when you do your deposit, use the promo code RAVENS, and they'll match your halfway to give you a head start on building that bankroll. You put in $200, and then they'll give you an extra $100 to play with. It's really simple to sign up, really simple to choose great things to bet on, whether you want to take the risky picks or play it safe and pick the the projected favorites, either way, you can make a little bit of money on my bookie using the code RAVENS so they know you came from film study. All right. Thanks. So supporting the show, always appreciated at my bookie. All right. So to me, coming out of this game, the one thing that really stood out defensively for the Ravens was two. Well, there, I guess there were two things. A disparity in the pass rush from first to second half, which we're going to get to later. That was incredible. But Going into the game, they only had four cornerbacks. They've only been playing with effectively two safeties that they even trust to be on the field for the last uh, entire season. <laughs> and we had a safety go down, Elliot, for the first time this year. Jordan Richards went in for five snaps. That's scary enough that he'd be on the, the back end of your defense. I guess as a special teams player. Yeah, yeah, primarily core special teamer. Yeah, but the point being that playing free safety – He's not necessarily going to be the best at identifying where the coverage is going to go or where he needs to be on the back end of a bracket, but he might be a good guy to have his last line of defense as a tackler. Yeah, yeah. He uh, comes from New England. People may not know that about Jordan Richards. So uh, he's been coached up uh, on the fundamentals. Obviously, you know, Belichick, huge special teams guy there, but also just in terms of all around details when it comes to defense. So probably not, um, you know, ideal in some ways, but a guy who, you know, could come in and, and I think could at least, you know, keep you above water for, for a while. Uh, and, and he did. He held the fourth down for five plays. So we'll give him credit for that. He did start 13 games. Let's see. Let me have the correct number of games. He started seven games for New England. He started 12 games for Atlanta in 2018. So it's not like he doesn't have any experience. It's just he has not played defense now in a while. And he only played two snaps with the Ravens in the time he's been here since last year. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's a, a little bit of a scary situation, obviously not what the Ravens wanted. They also lost Marlon Humphrey. It's probably the sum of all fears injury they can have on the back end is Marlon Humphrey going down with their current shortage of corners. They go into the game with four corners. Pierre Desir, a practice squad call up. Uh, who do they else they have? Tremont Williams playing the slot. And Anthony Averett, who's been playing well at the right cornerback position. But to have Humphrey go down and then have to replace him with Desir, that's a fairly substantial drop-off in play. It is. Uh, they were already down Jimmy Smith. They were already down Marcus Peters. Marlon Humphrey uh, was the man. And to see him go down uh, was extremely, extremely concerning. Uh, fortunately, he, he was able to get up, off, you know, get up and walk off under his own power and come back into the game. But, yeah, that was an extremely uh, nerve-wracking uh, time. <laughs> Yeah, he ended up missing five snaps, same as uh, as what Elliott did. 
Um, they came back in the game. Well, when both of them were back in the game, they, the, the defense was, you know, playing fairly well. Humphrey targeted a lot in this game, but was very good about not giving up receptions. He did have a pass interference uh, penalty. Another one that was th- the flag was thrown, but it was it was picked up for a PD in the end zone. Uh, that's now, I want to say it's seven pass interference calls on the year for Humphrey. Yeah, they've uh, they've 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 kind of added up for him a little bit there, and um, I think we know that he plays a very physical style of cornerback, mm-hmm. right? Very physical, and so I think um, it's one of those things where obviously you'd like to see that number be lower, as he would, I'm sure, but you kind of, I guess, are, are living with a certain amount of that just because of how he plays, the way mm-hmm. that he plays, um, that you're probably going to draw some of those. But we also see what he does. Um, in a lot of different ways, but I, the first thing that comes to my mind I, when you said that number, I was like, I wonder, is, does he have that many forced fumbles? <laughs> because obviously that's a huge part uh, of, of his game as well. Yeah, big offset there, obviously. You know, he's getting, I'm surprised that he's getting the percentage of the targets he has the last two weeks. I think he's been targeted 20 times combined in these two games. And it seems unusual to me that they'd be doing that when he's the only really starting cornerback the Ravens have left standing. And he's Marlon Humphrey. He's one of the better cornerbacks in the league, right? But I think part of it is Humphrey does not pose the interception threat that other great cornerbacks of the past, whether it's Deion Sanders or Darrell Revis or other players like that do. Um, uh, Even current guys like uh, J.C. Jackson, the guy guy at New England. I have that name right? J.C. Jackson? Yeah, that's right. Who's got all the interceptions or Xavier Howard Mm -hmm. at Miami. They pose a big interception risk, and the quarterbacks are less likely to take their chances throwing up trust balls in that general direction. Humphrey had three PDs in this game, which is great, he, and he, but he makes his he makes his living off of dislodging the football as it comes in and after the guy has made the reception, and not in terms of his ball skills. Yeah, and maybe some of those um, pass interference numbers you mentioned that could be another factor. I, mean, I agree with you mm-hmm. with everything that you just said, but maybe a little bit of that track record, right? Where, where offensive coordinators are thinking, Hey, we might be able, if nothing else to draw some flags on this guy. Yeah. So it's, that's a two out of three possible outcomes. Good. And with Humphrey, that's a good chance to try it because you have a low interception risk and a higher pass interference risk. That's a, that would be a good double. Getting back to the Ravens though, in terms of their depth at cornerback, I think this is a very significant issue. I think it's a significant issue for week 17. If they try and go into this game with four corners and two safeties again, I'd be very upset with that. And I'm not counting Richards and I'm not counting Levine at this point because the Ravens don't seem to want to put any either of them on the field in a dime situation. So if you don't want to put them in a dime situation, don't tell me they're perfectly fine to play free safety because we've got two safeties who would love to come up and play dime, I think, if that were the assignment. So it's if they don't want those guys in in the dime, they're not they're not guys they really want in at safety. So it tells me the Ravens probably need two more defensive backs to enter a game and make me comfortable with the situation. So they either need to have a six to big five situation at cornerback or a five cornerback situation where they would also have a guy versatile enough to play either safety or corner. One of those two. What I'm going to say about this is it may or may not matter against Cincinnati. It might, but it might not. But it sure as hell matters against Pittsburgh if that's the next team they play because we saw what the what Pittsburgh did to the Ravens by putting their constant four wide receiver sets on the field. Yeah, my hope uh, it, it is a concern. It's it, I, I think I 
was telling somebody on Twitter, this was weeks ago when kind of the, the, the cornerback injuries really started to pop up was that that was the biggest concern for me was mm-hmm. the, the depth at cornerback because um, we know what can happen in this league uh, when you start to lose cornerbacks and you're going against uh, the better teams in the AFC and the better teams in the league who like to throw it around. Um, so it's a big concern for me as well. I'm hoping that these, um, you know, a couple of weeks where guys like Jimmy is, has been, you know, unable to go and Marcus Peters has been unable to go that hopefully we'll get these guys healthy, even if it's not for Cincinnati. Hopefully they can get those guys healthy going into the playoffs and you can at least have those guys, Tremont Williams, uh, maybe get Terrell Bonds back. Uh, I don't I don't know the latest on his status. And of course you've got Anthony Aford who you talked about has been mm-hmm. playing pretty well. So I think if you could get back to that level, you'd feel a little more comfortable than, than you definitely feel right now. Yeah, I mean, I'd be happy with Averett as the fourth corner, Bonds as the fifth. That's where I am right now in terms of being happy with with the level of play. And Averett's a terrific fourth corner. Uh, you know, having Jimmy Smith and Marcus Peters as two and three, if they could somehow know they were going to get them back, I'd say great. My my feeling is they don't know that they can get them back, and they really need to make a move now because of the onboarding time constraints in the NFL right now. So they have to make a move to pick somebody up this week, not to have them for Cincinnati because they probably can't, but to have them for the first for that wild card weekend. And you know the natural the natural progression of injuries in the NFL is for there to be whatever your current prediction is for injuries at cornerback, you're not going to get better. You're going to get worse. And I don't care whether you are getting Jimmy Smith and Marcus Peters back. Somebody else is going to get hurt. So you you really can't trust your projection of your week 17 health situation to be reflective of what will be true in the wild card. You've got to add in degradation from there. And they've shown a uh, propensity to do that, right? Whether it's Devontae Harris, who's now on IR, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but at least the guy they went out and got. Jermon Williams, a guy they went out and got. Pierre Desir, a guy they went out and got. So I don't think that there's any uh, hesitancy on their part to try to go out and find those guys. It's just as you know, you're at this point in the season where uh, quality cornerbacks, even replacement level cornerbacks, they're not just out there waiting for you to come snatch them up. Um, you know, it's 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 going to be tough, uh, but hopefully they can find somebody uh, to to give them that insurance that you're talking about. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, every every option out there is at the replacement level or below. So right now, I'm not asking for them to get a good cornerback. I'm asking them to get a cornerback who has some time understanding their system. Before they, they get, and and I, you know, at this point, we we saw what happened to Terrell Bonds when he played against Pittsburgh. Pass interference, three for three on catches. I, I, I'm not. It's not an ideal situation, but if that's the fourth corner, and we could be sure of happening, I'd be happy with that right now. Yeah, I'd be happy with him. Yeah. So. Anyway, I, I'm also fearful that against teams like the Chiefs, like perhaps the Bills, but maybe not as much, and definitely Pittsburgh, that run a lot of this bunch formation stuff that you can no longer afford to have Board and Queen be your guys that are playing both on third down or or even Board alone because he's really the issue because they play him more as this proxy dime back, oftentimes as the only inside linebacker. And I, I think that's a losing strategy when the season comes up. And we're going to go through this. And Board had a great game. No, no two ways about it right here. But I can't have Board as a pass rusher only against Mahomes and Roethlisberger who are perfectly happy to be in an empty formation and throw it around. No, we know that those teams will find those weaknesses and target those weaknesses. We've seen it. <laughs> We've watched those games. It's not hypothetical. We've seen them do it. So uh, it's definitely something 
that you 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 want to limit it, right? If you're going to do it at all, you, you want to limit it um, because those guys will find Queen, will find Borg, will try to get them matched up on wide receivers or or even a running back if they feel they have an advantage there and take advantage of those guys. Yeah, it's even a lot of the the bunch formation stuff is. Th- they're things that are are more difficult for these linebackers to master off the line of scrimmage, you know, tr- to try and figure out how do they not only get to the guy they're supposed to cover or get to, or stay in the area they're supposed to cover. Sometimes that could be a problem, but but also having to negotiate that rub or pick is more difficult for a linebacker than it is for a faster defensive back who probably is more used to un- to understanding what the mechanics are of that. I know board played safety and whatnot, but also is faster with the makeup speed to to catch up if something goes wrong. Yeah, I think the mechanics of it uh, that you mentioned is a huge part, right? Because when you get into those bunch formations, you see defensive backs do that all the time, right? Where they're communicating, how are we going to play this, right? Are we going to lock it and everybody's going to follow their man no matter where they go? Are we going to do a lock and level? Are we going to play a box? Are we going to play a banjo? There's all these different techniques that you can play and that stuff has to be communicated and it has to be understood by everyone that here's what we're doing. Here's what that means. And it has to be executed. And obviously, DBs are just going to have more experience doing that because that's what they do. So you get linebackers out there, no matter how athletic they might be, that is not what they primarily do. And so there's been a couple of times this year where we've seen that, where linebackers have been involved in that bunch situation. And you can see guys talking to each other. So they're trying to communicate, mm-hmm. it, but then it doesn't quite play out the way that it, it appeared they were trying to to make it play out in terms of their communication. So it's just one of those things where it's, it's just not something that they do as much of uh, compared to what a DB would in terms of how they do it. Right. I, I completely agree. and And it's just something where – uh, it's, we know, I mean, we, these two teams are both directly in the headlights right now. Now the Ravens, not quite because they're one past Cincinnati, I hope still, <laughs> but they're, they're in the headlines, headlights as teams that the Ravens will have to beat if they want to make a run here. And, you know, I'll, I'll add Ryan Tannehill as a quarterback who, yeah, Tennessee doesn't run as much bunch formation, but they run a lot of play action and that, they, they're, you know, he knows how to manipulate linebackers as well as just about anybody right now. Yeah, they do run a ton of play action. We saw, again, it, it, it pains me to have to go back and bring these games back up uh, because we, we lived through them, but we saw what happened in the second half of that Titans game, right? They did a, a really good job mm-hmm. against um, their wide receivers in the first half, and then in the second half, I mean, those guys just went bananas. So, yeah, it's uh, you know these are the challenges that you're going to face with these teams in the playoffs because you've seen them all. So you've at least got some idea of probably, you know, how they're going to try to attack you again, which in a lot of ways I liked. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, the the heartburn of kind of needing help for other teams you don't love. But I think they had to go through some of the things that they went through to become the team that they are now. And so I can only hope that those experiences will benefit them when they see these teams again, because now they have a better idea of how they're going to try to attack them. Now, can you counter it? I mean, it's great to, to say, well, we know we have an idea, but then you got to go out there and actually counter it and execute. And that's, that's not the same thing always. No, it, 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 it certainly be a challenge. And, you know, a lot can be said about the Ravens not playing the best teams to do what they did, but they've really made these other teams look like they're not in the, not in the same league with them in terms of dominating the game offensively, playing the game on their own defensive terms after that. 
And that's the Ravens. That's the 2019 Ravens formula we've seen again these last four games. And it's the formula that you hope they could bring to bear on at least one playoff game this year uh, instead of zero <laughs> like last year. And uh, anyway, I, I'm, I'm still hopeful. I, I, they played well against Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's home field advantage won't mean a damn thing in this postseason if that's where they end up going. And I think that would be kind of an ideal playoff opponent. Where are you on that? Who would you like to see him play? That's always a tough thing for me because I don't I don't really it's hard for me to look at at teams once you get into the playoffs and say, oh, well, we should play this team because we're going to you know, it's, it's going to be an easier matchup or it's going to be this or it's going to be that. I've just been burned too many times. <laughs> so now I just you know, I'm very cynical about all teams. I'm like, look, whoever you get, you just need to prepare for that team. It doesn't matter to me who it is. You get who you get and you prepare like hell to try to defend that team on defense. Uh, and execute against them on offense. So I, I really don't care. I know there's a lot of people out there who who want to see Pittsburgh again because they feel like they had a chance to beat them uh, in both of those games, right? Even even the game mm-hmm. where they were down oh, yeah. a bunch of players. So you know, people people, and then obviously there's the rivalry, of course. So people kind of want to see that again. Um, I just don't like that notion of saying, "Well, we want to see this team." That makes me feel very uncomfortable. Maybe it's the former coach in me, but I don't. I don't <laughs> I'm not comfortable with that. I, I'll give you the other side of this. And and I do feel like you can you can get one good matchup in the playoffs that really suits you. And then after that, you got to play whoever you're faced. And it's every game is going to be, a, you know, a, a very difficult one. But it's kind of like the World Cup in the round of 16. So the 32 teams go to the World Cup. I, I know there's some non-soccer fans out there, so I'll just explain this. Then they play this group play and, you know, two teams from each group moves on. And oftentimes there's at least one, maybe two weak teams from the group play who make it on over a better group, over a better team from that group. And so you can sometimes in the round of 16 get one easy game, but you'll never get more than one easy game as the tournament goes on. Every other game from, from that point forward is a very difficult one. And I think that's the way the NF- NFL playoffs will play out this year. So it's, it's a weaker field with seven in there. If we were in the NFC, we'd be talking about wanting either the Cowboys or the Giants or the Redskins, certainly, in that first game, I think. Unfairly? No, 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 I don't think so. I don't think so. I think that that's fair. I think you look at those teams and, and you, yeah. even me, even me, you know, I'd, I'd have to admit, hey, if, if, if you got to choose between teams like that and, you know, stronger teams, yeah, you, you, you would take your chances with one of those. All right. Fair enough. Let's move on. We talked a little bit about the cornerbacks here. I'm very happy with Anthony Averett's play. Uh, we can get to him later if you want to bring him back up. Uh, defensive line I want to talk a little bit because having the Monstars back, they all really seem to be okay. This week, Brandon Williams looks like he's he's okay. From uh, does not seem to be hampered in terms of his play. Didn't play that much. Giants only ran the ball twelve times. They didn't have that much use for him. You know, in terms of their uh, OLB heavy packages that they played in the second half. So he didn't he didn't play all that many snaps. Uh, Matt Abike has looked really good these last few weeks. I, I I thought, but but more importantly, and this is most importantly of all, Campbell looked way healthier than he did two weeks ago. Yeah, he did. He moved around a lot better, looked a lot more comfortable out there. Um, you could see that first game back against the Cowboys really was hampered. And then a little bit better the next week, but you could still see, you know, maybe shaking off a little bit of the rust. Uh, this week, um, I don't know how close he is to 100% what he would say about that, but looked like he was a lot closer to um, the Calais Campbell we saw when he was healthy uh, than what we saw in the, in the Dallas and the Browns game. So that's huge. Uh, to get him back and, and, and get him feeling better. And then you mentioned all the other guys. I mean, 
yeah, I know we'll do this, but you, you, it seems like you could almost just go down the list of guys who, who, who played uh, at, at least well, if not better, <laughs> against this Giants O-line. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was quite a second half, and I know we definitely want to do that. Talk, I want to talk about the DL snaps for just a minute because it was a great game for conserving total defensive line snaps. Wolf played the most of anybody. Now Wolf's been playing up to fifty snaps. I think he played anybody played fifty seven in one game. He played thirty five snaps in this game. That's a vacation in Hawaii for Derek Wolf at this point during the season. I mean, he's he's played extremely well. He's been the Iron Man. He plays in all these pass rush packages. He's very important to the Ravens, so they can't be without him. He played 35 snaps. Everybody else of the activated defensive lineman was between 18 and 21, which is a very light workload, very well spread. Yeah, just just for a point of reference, um, people may know uh, Yoshi2052 on Twitter, another Josh. Uh, he just told me earlier today that uh, I think the Giants D-line, by contrast, I think it was Lawrence and Williams played 51 snaps. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think Tomlinson played 45. So just just use those to contrast those numbers that you just talked about. And you, you can see it, it was an extremely, uh, you know, light load for the Ravens D-line and, and a good opportunity uh, to rotate guys, keep guys fresh. Um, and, and man, the Giants, I, I, I don't know. man. <laughs> part part of, of maybe them getting worn down the way I know we're not talking offense here, but maybe part of the right. way they got worn down was because of that workload. It's a, it's a, you know, that's a heavy workload, but Haloti Nada, Kelly Gregg in their primes, they were, they were okay with 50 snaps. It's, it's a, you know, they played 66. So Josh may be including penalties with that. So I might have it as like 48 or something, but it's still, it's about a 70% workload. That's at the outer limit of where a defensive lineman should ever be. I think there've been eight seasons in Ravens history where a defensive lineman has played 70% of the snaps. So it's it's it has it does happen sometimes. I think Kelly Gregg, I'm sorry, Nada was up as high as 76 percent one year. It, it happens, but it's it's a, I agree it's too much, and especially too much for an interior player when they're leaning on him with double teams, play after play after play after play. But that said, those guys look great. Lawrence and 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 uh, uh, I'm losing his name. It's not Williams, is it? Tomlinson or Williams? No, it's on the inside. The the, the first round draft pick, recent year. I want to say Williams, but it's Quinn and Williams, right? Who's the nine, number 99? Leonard Williams. Right? Leonard Williams. Williams. There you go. Okay. They're outstanding. They're unbelievably good. They gave the Ravens offensive line a lot of fits in the game. So I don't think it was that um, they didn't play well. It's just I, I would agree. I would not I would try and avoid playing any defensive line for 51 snaps. Yeah, like you said, having 600 pounds lean on you play after play after play, is, no matter how good you are, is going to take a toll. Uh, 1.96 defensive line snaps per play. That's back down towards the number they were at last year, uh, which was the franchise low. Uh, Not quite there, but anytime you can play less than two snaps per play, it's like you're playing a less heavy package than a standard nickel every every play. So that's really good. If you could play the standard nickel every play, you just get two snaps, two defensive line snaps, and then you'd really be conserving. But uh, but they did a good job. They only had a few handful of snaps where they where they played three defensive linemen the whole game. I like the conservation. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Going to need that. So I'm, I'm a, when you can do it, I, I guess the reason I, I, I that that matters to me is because there are going to be games where that's not going to be the case. You just talked about that. Yeah. And so where you can steal these opportunities to maybe keep guys fresh when you know those other games are coming uh, are, are pretty important to me to be able to do that when you can. Well, you know, it's, it's not just the defense either. The offense has to play well 
to eat up snap count of their own. And in this case, it's clock. I think it's snap count is what you use to wear down the opposing defense. But clock is what you burn up to keep your own defense fresh in terms of you know, keeping them off the field and, and not having to having to play as many plays. And the offense did a wonderful job of that in the first half. Giants only ran 18 snaps. In the second half, they pretty much controlled the football for most of the time and, and ran 41 non-penalty snaps. So they, they certainly had a, a lot of snaps in that second half. That's been the formula since Lamar has taken over, right, for success, which you just talked about. When they can do that, uh, they're, they're pretty tough to beat. Yeah, they won snap count a lot more um, one-sidedly last year. Uh, than they have this year. This year, they haven't been nearly as good with snap count. But, you know, the 2019 offensive formula is back, and it's it's really nice to see. Let's talk packages here a little bit. And and this gets to some of the things we're talking about. I'll go pretty quickly. They didn't play a single snap of jumbo, but, of course, the Giants didn't run a play inside the three-yard line. So there weren't really that many opportunities. They could have played it on one-fourth and one. Instead, they played base, um, and they gave up the first down. Uh, nine snaps at base. They use that against 22, 12, 13, and 21 personnel. The Giants, as much as any team recently, uses a l- very tight end centric in terms of their offense. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got a chance to watch two of their games. Uh, I think it was the Browns and the Cardinals. And yeah, I was surprised by that, actually. I mean, I hadn't followed them at all, so I, I, mm-hmm. I didn't have any point of reference. But I was actually surprised by how uh, many multiple tight end packages they use. I and mean, I knew about Evan Ingram, but he's more of a pass catcher than kind of an mm-hmm. inline type tight end. But a couple other guys who I, I just wrote down their numbers. I don't have their names. Uh, were out there quite a bit too. Uh, so that was something I was not aware of. But I guess uh, considering you know maybe some of their coaching staff and their history, Joe Judge, you know, tough guy, right? Wants to establish the run, establish physical presence. Uh, maybe that's a philosophy he wants to employ. Right. So Caden Smith was out there fair amount, number 82. And I think Levine Taloilo, who's a huge guy, he's the 6'8 tight end who really is like an offensive tackle. Uh, he might have been out there some in this game. I, I He would have been the other one who was active. I think he was on the field. I'm, I'm, in any case, what's nice about this, and the reason I want to say this is, Eric Tomlinson came from the Giants practice squad and one of the things we just noticed in watching the offensive line play is the guy is an absolute monster blocker. I mean, he he blocks like an offensive lineman. He's he's Nick Boyle. Uh, he's not he's not the receiver Nick Boyle is, but he's but he's a fantastic blocker. They use him almost exclusively for that. He's been very good, very good. I mean, when they were kind of mixing between him and Luke Wilson, uh, you only got to see a little bit of it. But after they kind of moved on from Luke Wilson and and Tomlinson has gotten more opportunities. He's very good, very good technically, very good with his hand placement, very good with his footwork, uh, has some power that he plays with, some functional power. And he seems to have picked up their system like re- like relatively quickly. Uh, he doesn't look really lost or confused out there for the most part. I mean, you can have some occasional missed assignments. I mean, it happens, but mm-hmm. uh, he's looked very comfortable to me. Yeah, he, he's hardly been used in a, in a pattern the whole year. And I, I you know, I, I don't have the exact number on me, but he, a handful of patterns is what he's run. But he did happen to run the clear out pattern on Des Bryant's touchdown. There you go. There you go. De- hey, Des, you know, maybe give him a little extra Christmas gift for that. There you go. That's uh, it's probably something he needs to do. Uh, let's go back to the packages here. Nine snaps of base. Uh, I mentioned that already. Only, only, by the way, 13 yards on those nine snaps of base by the Giants. So that was that shut down the running play very effectively to have Brandon Williams in there or Ellis, along with a total of three defensive linemen. Uh, played two snaps of jumbo nickel. That's the only other time they had three defensive linemen on the field. 
Unfortunately, that didn't work as well. So the Bryants ran twice for nine and three yards, got a first down, and then they pulled it off the field never to return. The jumbo nickel is a is an in-between package where they're trying to emphasize run defense. So there weren't a lot of opportunities to use that in this game. It's a nice change of pace against 11 personnel. But when the other team really needs to pass when they put 11 personnel on the field, there's not a reason that, a lot of reason to have jumbo nickel in the game. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. All right. Standard nickel is most of what they played, 32 snaps. Uh, the Giants used – let me see if I have the number here. It was, I think, 2.72 uh, offensive – sorry, wide receivers per play, which gives you an idea of how often they're playing 11. And so the, the result – they did most of their play was with the standard nickel. But we're going to get into what they really conserved – more linemen on was playing the rush nickel and race car packages. Now the rush nickel, they put the field on 11, 11 plays. Every one of those 11 saves you one defensive line snap because you only play it with one down lineman and three outside linebackers instead of two and two. So that's those they used on third and medium and long, and they used them for the last eight plays of the ball game uh, ended up being a total of 11 snaps. They used that for anything about that, Michael, before I move on. No, uh, I actually hadn't thought about it that way, though, before in terms of, of saving a defensive line snap. That's that's a, a, a very good way to look at it. Yeah, so it, it's 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 definitely one of the contributors. I always have to balance that out when I'm looking at how many DL DLs they played per play. The race car nickel, four snaps. Uh, that's with four outside linebackers on the field. They still use either Wolf or Campbell in the middle of that formation, uh, or at least they have uh, this year so far. And so that saves you only one DL also, but it's still 15 snaps where they don't play one when they have, you know, what is it? 11 snaps going the other way where they played an extra. So you can see where the savings in defensive line is coming from for, uh, under two. And then of course the Ravens had their infamous 12 men on the field where Judon couldn't get off the field in time. Mighty frustrating. Yeah. Was that the one that he, he had a penalty on that in terms, I mean, in, in addition to, being the 12th man was he offsides or something uh he he had a bad day of penalties obviously but this one he was he was sauntering off the field i would describe it as and was far too slow getting off mm. and they ran the play normally and michael you've seen this before i, th- I guess may call it when it's in the defensive huddle and they have 12 men on they just throw the flag right there yeah uh, but if it's but if it's if they're coming off the field as the play's about to be run they don't call it right there so i don't i'm not you know, I don't really have that kind of a grounding in the technical penalty rules like that to know exactly why they would call it. But it gave him a free play in this case, and they and they they ran a 13 yard pass play. So frustrating. Anyway, yeah, it was weird um, how they approached that in this game because it, they called it that way with him, and then there was the one where Ngakwe was trying to get off the field and he trips over the wide receiver, right. and they stop it, right? And and then Joe Judge is all upset because he's like, "Why are you stopping?" <laughs> so it's a little weird how they approach those. Yeah, I guess they I guess they must have seen that. The other thing is that if the Giants had made a change, then the Ravens are entitled to change too. And that includes getting your players off the field, not just the new ones on. So the officials have to hold that ball up for a meaningful period of time. And you know, the only response necessary to Joe Judge is you made a defensive change. Or you made an offensive change, sorry. Uh they get to go they get to go off. And then Ngakwe obviously was pissed about getting tripped on the play. Yeah. I'm not a lip reader, but Looked like Joe, Joe, Joe said some very some things that weren't very yeah. nice. The mask reader. Yeah. <laughs> That's what Jeff <laughs> did. All right, let's go on and talk a little pass rush because this was, to my mind, it was the story of the game was this sharp dichotomy from half one to half two. And it's just totally weird to me how it worked out. First half, Daniel Jones had 11 ample time and space opportunities, got the ball out quick twice, 
and zero pressures. That's an 85% ample time and space rate. Now, you guys have been, have been listening to this show for a while. Know a, a pretty typical rate in, in the league right now is about one third, 33%, 35%, right in that range. And eight to get allow 85% in one half, have it be 13, have it be actually 11 ample time and space opportunities, and not to get picked apart by Jones is just incredible. I mean, it, it, to, to not succeed with that kind of opportunity set. And you're playing with, I don't know, your fourth, fifth, sixth corner out there. Uh, So to have that amount of time uh, to have those guys, no disrespect to those guys. I mean, they're in the league, so obviously they can play, but still they're not starters. And that's for a reason Um, you, you'd expect there to be more uh, passing yards and, and, and sort of more efficiency that came out of that. But uh, that's really strong. I did. I was looking at the the notes that you sent before the show, and I'm like, all right, let me read through. I had no idea it was 85 percent though. That's yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So anyway, in the in the first half, the Giants shot themselves in the foot offensively in a lot of different ways. They had a third and seven. They ended up getting a ten yard pass two plays later, but it wasn't until after they've had ten yards on two false start penalties that kind of ruined that drive. Then they had the big drop on third and four that cost them a first down. They had a huge shot one-on-one with Humphrey down the middle of the field with Shepard where he was even and leaving as that ball was thrown. I don't know if that ball was on target, but it looked like a nicely aired out ball down the middle of the field that I wouldn't want to see what the outcome was if I saw how cleanly Jones got it off. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. After a while, it just started to look like bad luck or something. I'm like, how are they not able to take more advantage of these opportunities? And like you said, he's got time. He's getting the ball out. Seems to be throwing it relatively accurately. Uh, Receivers are are creating at least some separation or at least gaining some position. But it's just not happening for him. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it was. I mean, look, it certainly was one of those days. And Giants had a lot of those days this year, but uh, just just didn't work out in that first half, and then. It, it was a whole lot. It was a whole different ball game in the second half. Yeah, well, it sure was. Anthony Averett, I think, deserves some of the credit for the first half for shutting him down. He had a PD in the first half. Uh, Humphrey had the big PD in the end zone. That was that saved four points, maybe if he hadn't gotten it, or or if he'd drawn the pass interference call as they had him flagged for originally. And they picked up. By the way, I thought it was very much the right call for them to pick up that flag. Ravens show. I'm sure we won't have a lot of objections, but it, it's the it's the classic. Hand was around the receiver, but hand was not twisting the receiver. Yeah, I agree with that. And like you said, I mean, people would say it's a little homerism. But, I mean, if you look at how they define that and how they talk about it, he didn't turn him, he didn't alter his position or anything. You see guys do that all the time. Uh, They're actually coached to do that in a lot of ways, to kind of get one hand around to make sure you secure the tackle and then Mm -hmm. use your other hand to defend the ball. So, um, yeah, I thought that was the right call. All right. Um, Okay, second half now. They threw the ball, let me make sure I have this right, 34 times in the second half of 47 for the game. 10 were ample time and space. Now that's back down to the normal kind of level, 29.4%. Six ball out quick. And since we're almost up to half, 18 pressures in the second half. Over 50%, they really flipped it on. And when we really think about what worked in that second half, Wink dialed up the numbers in particular. Did a lot with scheme as well. But he dialed up the numbers in particularly, and the Ravens were amazingly successful. Now, let me give you the, the, the big story on this. When the Ravens rushed six or more, which, by the way, the Ravens typically rush six or more, maybe three to four times in a game. They did 12 times in this game. 
And and the Giants got minus 13 yards on those plays. Yeah, it reminded me of um, Shark Week on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> they're out there and they're trying to find these sharks, right? And they're throwing chum in the water, right? Mm-hmm. Those blood to kind of get the sharks to come around. Because I'm like, what what happened from the first half to the second half other than, I guess, you know, Wink's looking back at it and he's thinking, oh, man, we – we can't let this guy sit back there, right? I don't, I don't care what the lead is or what's going on. We can't let this guy sit back there. And then you look at their offensive line. You've got a rookie at left tackle, right, in Thomas. You've got Shane Lemieux, who's a rookie left guard, and I think they're rotating with Hernandez there. And then they got a rookie at right tackle who they were rotating in. He didn't start, but uh, Matthew Perk came in. Man, he got worked over. Uh, but I think when you've got that out there, and, and I remember telling somebody as I was watching those previous two Giants games, I said, look, I think their offensive line is going to have a lot of trouble identifying yes. what the Ravens are doing. <laughs> it, it's, it, that's exactly it. And, and you know, it's a cohesiveness thing in part, but there's something else going on is these guys do not know how to play freaking football at this point. I, I watched Thomas Lemieux and the right guy, right side, Peart, but, uh, Peart, but also the, the, the starting guy, 75. Fleming. Uh, Fleming. Yeah. All of those guys had missed assignments on who to block for forget the forget the really understanding how your partner's going to pass a stunt to you anything like this they have two guys coming at them and they blocked the wrong guy they blocked the outside guy when the inside guy or one time he looked outside tried to block turned back inside realized that guy's that's the guy he's supposed to block this is on the right side missed them both <laughs> so, it showed up in the cardinals game big time <laughs> when i was watching i mean they had five sacks in that game so obviously but when you looked at how they happened they're just free runners Right. Mm-hmm. There's just guys just running scot free. Look, if, right. if you get beat, right, if you're actually blocking the right guy and he beats you, okay, that's one thing. But when you just got free runners hitting the quarterback, uh, that's an identification issue. And for me, I was like, the, if they're struggling to do that against a team like the Cardinals and a little bit uh, against the Browns, and they don't employ nearly as much deception and crowding the line with all the guys at the rate. I was like, there's no way that these guys are going to have success against Wink because he's going to show everything. He didn't maybe do it as much in the first half, but in the second half, he just opened it up. Yeah, he, he lined them up. They only had one rush of seven in that whole first half. They didn't rush otherwise six or more at all. So 11 of them were in the second half. So that's that was fun. Um, they had 34, 34 blitzes from off the line of scrimmage in this game. Now, that doesn't mean they they weren't rushing tons of people from on the line of scrimmage because they only had uh, sorry four times where they dropped two or more from the line of scrimmage. That is very un Martindale like. Martindale loves to set up the simulated pressure and drop it off. But in this time, he wasn't simulating pressure; he was sending it. So he'd send six guys line of scrimmage and they'd all go, or seven guys line of scrimmage and they all go. Yeah, and I know sometimes people don't like those off the line of scrimmage blitzes, especially when they're coming from depth. I mean, the ones kind of coming off the edge from like a nickel or stuff like that, people don't mind as much, but the ones that are maybe coming from a little bit more depth, people don't always love. So like, Oh, that guy's never going to get there. And sometimes that's true, but something that I heard recently that I had never thought about um, was a defensive coordinator. And he talked about just mentally what that does to some quarterbacks. Not oh, yeah. all, right. Just show the, them color. Yeah. Show them color. And then the velocity. Right. The speed at which this guy is coming creates a different thing mentally. Right. It's one thing when the guy's at the line of scrimmage and you kind of see him, you're like, okay, I know just from experience kind of how much time I got the clock in my head. When you see this other guy coming from death like a missile, 
Mm-hmm. It just speeds you up. You're like, oh my God, look how fast this guy's running. <laughs> so I had never thought about that before. I'd always kind of been in the camp like, okay, yeah, it's cool when it gets home, but rarely does because they're coming from so far away. But they said, you know, really it's about the court. You know who it was? It was, um, who's a guy? He's, he's the Eagles D-line coach now, but he'd uh, coached Detroit. He'd been in Tennessee. Jim Schwartz. Mm-hmm. Jim Schwartz. It was a clinic that he gave some years ago. And he talked about, and he was giving it to a bunch of offensive, he was doing it at an offensive line clinic. So he's talking to a bunch of offensive line coaches about, you know, kind of how he approached the game from a defensive coach's perspective. And they were talking about pass rush. And they were like, what's the first thing you do when you're looking at evaluating, you know, another team's pass protection? He said, we didn't even start with the offensive line. We started with the quarterback. How does he react to how How does he react to different things? Because they're like, look, at the end of the day, that's what matters, right? If these guys are getting the ball out real quick, it doesn't matter whether I can put my guy here over your guy or do this or do that. None of that matters if that guy is getting the ball out, um, you know, quicker than we can get there. So it all started with studying the quarterback. And, you know, I, I, it's on YouTube. People can search it out there. Just put his put Jim Schwartz in defensive clinic and learn a ton of stuff, regardless of what you think about him and record and stuff like that. The guy was really knowledgeable. So um, sorry to derail us there. Well, all, all coaches pretty much are knowledgeable at whatever their discipline is. <laughs> I, 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 you know, Martindale has done a really good job, I think, in recent weeks, realizing when you can't get to the quarterback. And they you know, went through this long five game drought of not really getting any pass rush. Two Roethlisberger games. Roethlisberger gets gets the ball out as quickly as anybody. Rivers gets the ball out very quickly. I mean, you just have to adopt a different strategy when it goes to goes to that. Even Roethlisberger, even at his age, the complaints about him making really bad decisions with the football have all come since that eleventh win against the Ravens. And so, the first two games, I thought Ben was extremely confident looking from an empty backfield in leading them back in the game in Baltimore, which is really the, one of the Ravens' real disappointing losses of the year. I thought in the second game, it was more a fact of the Ravens were just severely undermanned with the COVID situation being what it is. But boy, I think Martindale, getting back to the point, is, has been extremely good about matching game plan with quarterback. Yeah, and Schwartz talked about that. That was one of his big points. It's like, look, they get rid of the ball so fast mm-hmm. in this league now that – you can talk about bringing five, six, seven, all you want. Ball still getting out. Mm-hmm. So you've got to adapt. It also kind of means, doesn't it, Michael, that you have to scheme for free runners and it makes it puts an extra emphasis on scheme as opposed to trying to win one-on-one matchups with your great pass rushers. It just is not as productive anymore as it once was. Those guys still get sacks and they get cleanup sacks. They, they often have to have help to get a sack. Somebody else has to get there first, force the quarterback to shuffle to one side, and then he's dead. Yeah, I agree. And I think Wink is as good at that as any DC in the league at scheming free runners because he's going to know your pass protection inside and out. And you saw it. I mean, you obviously you, you charted the game and did your article. I mean, they're running kind of standard two man twist. They're running three man games. They're doing all of these different things uh, to not only create those individual matchups, but also create um, free runners. Right. You'll see oftentimes when they do that three man game, they'll isolate a tackle and a guard. Right. And get both of those guys blocking, create a gap and then rush another guy through that empty gap, whether that's Queen or somebody else. So he's so good at getting free runners, because I think to your point, he knows if we just line up and just try to bash heads all day, we're not going to get there a lot of times. So, yeah, even stunts take a little bit of time. But Jones does hold the ball for a little bit longer. He's a more normal kind of time. But the 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 
archetypal, tell me as a lawyer what the correct word is, the prototype, the archetype, what, the, the most germane example I can give of what you're talking about in terms of a stunt was a two-man stunt they ran on McPhee's, two, a two-way stunt on McPhee's sack. And on both sides, McPhee and Campbell were the unders on their on their two sides. And both of them were the ones who derived the advantage and got to the quarterback almost simultaneously. I love to see that. I love to see the under guy winning. That's when a stunt game is really working because your under guy makes that play by getting in there and forcing what I always describe as two 45 degree angle blocks that are slightly off center from each player. And then when that other player peels around with a little bit of speed, you know, then one of those blocks has to peel off. The other guy is severely disadvantaged against the original crasher, the pick player, the under player, whatever you want to call him. And that guy is often the one who comes up with the good opportunity for the sack. On that play, it was both of them got the good opportunity coming off that. I'd love to see that. Yeah, it's something I want to take a look at um, this offseason. I've done it in past offseasons, but I haven't gone through as many games as I wanted. But I think that underneath guy that they have, you know, some people call it the penetrator and the, the other guy's the looper. Um, he that person gets sacks more than you would think. Right. Oh, you, yeah. think, you think they're setting the pick and kind of giving themselves up. And that's not really the case a lot. Oh, no, no. It's it's very often the under guy has the better advantage. I mean, it's it's nice to have players who have the quickness and they, you know, the Ravens with Judon and Gakwe. I would put Matt Abike in this class as being quick enough to take advantage of it. And certainly Bowser are terrific. And and you, you talk about second level players like Queen, if you want to include them in that group as, as creating problems for a for a, a stunt. But those, if if you have guys like that, those under guys are going to get tremendous opportunities. And the Ravens got, have had a number of great under players in the history. They've had uh, Tim Jernigan fell in that category. Uh, they, they've had uh, Trevor Price was in that category. Uh, they've had Sam Adams was in that category as being a guy who who could had the quickness and the thunderous first step to cross somebody's face and create huge disadvantages. But when you have two or three of them, like the current Ravens have, it's like an additional critical mass that completely is is messing up opposing offensive lines. It's very fun to see. Yeah, messed up the Giants on the line for sure. <laughs> All right, let's move on here. I'm sorry to hold us up with extra storytelling there. How about we talk some, by the way, highest deceptive pass rush rate of the year for the Ravens in this 13 total uh, in this game. Uh, I think we got everything that I wanted to really talk about. Individual player discussions. Bring a player up. You know the formula. Who's your guy? All right. So I know there's going to be a lot of defensive line types to talk about, but we mentioned this guy's name a couple of times. So I want to give him a little plug here. Anthony, right? Mm-hmm. People will probably focus on the touchdown, right? It's, it's it's always kind of those plays that stick with you and you think, oh, I can just say played well. Guy gave up a touchdown. Look, tough situation, right? They were on the two or the three yard line. Um you get that route that starts off by stemming inside and the receiver right. breaks back outside. You're looking for that quick slant, right? You're already in a very confined area. You're expecting the ball, all of that, right? But look at the other plays. Look at the PDs. One of those I really thought could have been an interception. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I think he's a guy that has just gotten better and better. And for me, it's like he's he's right on the verge of going to that playmaker level, right? He sees things and he's breaking on balls. He's, 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 he's jumping routes, but he's just still a beat late. It's almost like he just doesn't completely trust it yet. Um, but you see the ability there and you see that trust and confidence kind of growing. So if, like we talked about earlier, you get these other guys back healthy, but there's still a role for him. He could be a really important part of what they do back oh, there yeah. in the secondary. 
I, I trust him as one of the fourth cornerback, you know, as the fourth cornerback, which means he might be one of the regular cornerbacks against a four wide receiver rotation that, that Pittsburgh in particular could throw at you. Uh, you know, I also, I think he's a guy you, you probably end up wanting on the outside as opposed to the inside, but somebody else has to move to the inside if the four cornerbacks are Smith, Peters, Humphrey, and Averett. I mean, those are four outside guys, plain and simple. Humphrey's shown some adaptability to the slot. There really isn't anybody else. It really, I think, would have to be Averett moving into the slot and not Peters or Smith if that were the case. Yeah, I agree. I think if, if somebody had to go, and if it was only one guy, it would probably be Humphrey. If it's two guys, then yeah, I think you're right. It's going to be Humphrey and Averett um, inside. You're not going to see more than likely. You're not going to see Peters and Jimmy in there. But it depends on the call. You know, if you're playing – true like full lock man where you follow your guy wherever you go and your guy's inside then you'll, you'll be inside but i think in general um you're probably not going to see it shake out that way the other thing i'd say about Averett is the progression year one i thought he had he, he did exactly what you'd hope a rookie corner to do draft in that round played 65 snaps played pretty well on that thing i thought you know this is a guy we got to keep an eye on him he might really work out second year moderately regressed did not play well against Arizona early in the year had some other playing time opportunities where he was okay but not great and then this year I think he's taken a pretty substantial step forward and people will look at that Dallas game look at all the off coverage receptions he gave up but that was the defensive game plan at that point they were playing a very soft zone they allowed Dallas a tremendous number of plays between 10 and 19 yards only one play of 20 plus yards that whole game against that receiving core is I think very good and obviously the Ravens in control of the game were in part controlling pace by forcing those throws in front of Averitt yeah yeah I I know it's an intangible and, and, and sometimes people don't like those but to me the whole key to to what he ultimately becomes is confidence he's got the ability right the physical ability is there we can see that it's just trusting in himself trusting in his ability trusting what he sees because he's seen things now he's seen routes right now just go get the ball just go get the ball and make a play yeah yeah very very excited about him let me pick a player we better talk about chris board uh he's certainly on my mvp list here got a uh, a lot of pressure in this game uh he he blitzed a fair amount but he didn't blitz as much as say Queen. That just the difference was he had a lot of rush opportunities that were from the line of scrimmage, and as that outside player, he was unblocked. Now that's great if you can get those, and I don't have, give him all the credit. What I do give him for the credit for is finishing. So he got there, he got the Zarns on the quarterback, he took the quarterback down. Those were great finishes. One of his really good plays, which didn't end up going as a sack, was at the end of the game. They had third and 10, I believe, because this play brought up fourth and seven. Clark actually got the pressure unblocked off the offensive right side, I believe. Board came from the left side, cleaned up for what essentially was a sack for plus three. Would have been his third sack of the game, but Jones made it three yards past the line of scrimmage. He doesn't want to get tackled for any kind of inbounds play that's less than 10 yards on third and 10. Anyway, that brought up fourth and seven, and that was ultimately their, their last offensive play of the game. Yeah, Board looked really active in this game. He's 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 looked more comfortable this year. Uh, obviously, he's had some opportunities in previous years to to play a little towards the beginning of the season, and uh, maybe hasn't always looked super comfortable out there. But he's he's definitely looked more so this year. And he had a couple of those rush opportunities where it was him and Tremont Williams coming off the same side. And like I said, they're they're trying to to isolate that tackle and that guard and and, and occupy both of those guys, and then bring a free guy. 
Um, and, and he, I think, benefited from some of those. And you mentioned Queen. Man, Queen could have had a couple of sacks. <laughs> he ran right past Daniel Jones a couple of times. But um, but we'll, we'll save that for another, another discussion. Sure. I, board, to me, in coverage has not been terrible the last, I don't know, half dozen weeks or so. But to, to me, it's it's still – it's a struggle for him, and it's more of a struggle than it should be for a guy who's – otherwise could be replaced by a safety. I'm When I say that, I'm saying that I, I love having his pass rush in the game. I thought he really brought value to the Ravens that way, but I would really prefer if the Ravens had a third safety. So at least they could choose by, by, by situation in the game. And I don't mean down a distance. I mean more like what, what kind of a lead do the Ravens have to move to a pure dime situation where your third best safety sure as hell better be a better cover guy than your second best linebacker. Yeah, anytime you've got a linebacker out there, um, no matter how athletic that guy might be, right, unless he's like a freak, mm-hmm. uh, teams are going to look to take advantage of that guy, right, in the passing game. And sometimes that's that's just the nature of it. Um, I think he's been a little better when they play him in man. Like if he can get on a tight end and literally play man coverage on a tight end, people might remember that play against uh, the Eagles. Um made a really nice play yeah. against one of their tight ends. I can't remember if it was Goddard or um, – A pass defense on maybe a slant or – Yeah, really, really nice play. And he's he's had some of those uh, when he's able to play tighter sort of man coverage. But uh, when he's off or, and, and kind of in zone, uh, it's been a little bit more of a struggle. And that's the – honestly, that's it's such a generalized problem for linebackers. I don't want to put this all on Chris Board, but he has no idea what's going on behind him. In zone coverage, no idea. And but it's true of Queen too. Is they have really no idea of, of what they're looking at the line of scrimmage and what route combinations are likely to evolve from that. And I know I've said it a bunch of times on this year, but that's something. If you didn't appreciate C.J. Mosley for that or Ray Lewis for that, uh, even when he had no speed at all left, he understood what route combinations are coming and he knew where to get to possibly get in the way of that pass. Yeah, it's 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 a really difficult thing to become good at as a linebacker in the NFL because think about what those guys are, are primarily taught to do in terms of reading things. Oh yeah. Right. They're primarily run players, number one. Uh even though now, you know, obviously you have to play both, but they're taught to read and react, right? You see things, you see color, you see movement in front of you and you attack it, right? So you have to really kind of take a different approach in coverage because you almost have to know what's happening in front of you is the cheese. Mm-hmm. And you can't take it, mm-hmm. but they take it. <laughs> so it's just one of those things that I think with younger players, it takes time. One of the other guests on our show has explained it to me a different way. He says they need to take linebackers who don't recognize the play action tells right away, need to take more read steps. So they're naturally are taking a step towards a play, step towards a play, step towards a play. And it's taking them one extra step to decide, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> that ball didn't just get handed off. It's, it's, it's coming back my way. So uh, anyway, I love that description. Your turn. So I'm going to talk another guy we mentioned, Justin Matabike. I uh, believe he got his first sack. I think it was his first sack of the year uh, in this game. But really, he's been playing well for a couple of games now, um, creating some of that interior pass rush um, in a lot of different ways, right? He's shown some power, shown, shown some strength in there, also shown some quickness and some explosiveness in terms of being able to be really – um, sort of that first step quickness, getting up the field, and then some violence too with his hands, just getting guys' hands off of him, kind of ripping up under guys. So I don't know that they've had that in a while, right? That kind of, I mean, Pierce and 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 B. Will 
different kind of guys, right? When when they're rushing the passer, different kind of guys. So that quick sort of interior three technique pass rush, I don't know that they've had that uh, in a while until this year, and he's given them some of that lately. I mean, they've certainly had guys in the past, but yeah. but yeah, you're right. They haven't had it in a while. And these last two weeks have been remarkable in terms of Matty Bique's ability. Violence of hands, you mentioned. I love it. Uh, he is. He had five pressures in the previous game. I believe every one was a one-on-one win. Okay, that's fantastic for one. Like that. Yeah. Okay. This game, his only sack was a one-on-one win. It's the one sack in the whole game that didn't fall into the some sort of scheme overload yada yada category. He just beat Shane Lemieux, got his arm over, hands violent, right past him to the left side and, and, and was gone. It's I love to see that because you can only scheme so far. Eventually you have to win some one-on-one battles. And even if he's not winning him in the pass game, he needs to win him in the run game too to to you know make those tackles easily and be able to shed those those guys that uh you know are are opposite him. All right. Yeah, I love that choice. Great, great pick. I'm going to take uh, – uh, let's talk about Matthew Judon because certainly an up-and-down game for Matthew, a great high bend and, and something we don't often see from Judon. At least I, I don't identify it with him as much. He got low under the arm of a larger right tackle uh, to make that sack he did. Yeah, he flashes it. You're right. You don't see it a ton. Flash might be the best way to describe it. You might see a couple times a year, but every now and then you'll see it. And when I see it, it always surprises me because like you said, I don't necessarily think of him in that way. And I'm like, man, he's really flexible. He really got low on that. Uh, Maybe it's just right combination of circumstances. I don't know. Uh, But you see it a couple times a year. Obviously you saw it against Pert. Um, Had a really nice play on a screen. Yes. Uh, where he had to fight through a couple of blocks. And even when he got through, he was in a position where I'm like, well, he's still not going to make that tackle. But somehow he gets a hold of Shepard's leg. I think it was Shepard. Mm-hmm. And he just, he just won't let him go. Yeah, right. I was in a bear trap. Yeah. I, I, so much I loved about that play. The first thing was his recognition immediately was fantastic. That didn't mean he was going to be able to stop it. But he saw that, wait a minute, no, no pass rushing is that easy. And then he looked over and he sees the other lineman. And his immediate response is, that's the ball's going right there. I need to get by that lineman. And he did. So those three linemen who were out in front of the play, totally vestigial in terms of they didn't impact the play in any way, shape, or form. He got to Shepard uh, just a little bit after the ball does. And, of course, Shepard went down just as you described for a loss of five. It's, it's, it's one of the great Matthew Judon plays this year. But his screen recognition is something the Ravens will really miss next year if they're not able to resign him. Yeah, we know they've they've been susceptible in the screen game uh, in terms of defending it. And, and that's the biggest part of it, in my opinion, is the recognition. Um, because if, if you don't get to it at that point where he got to it, you don't see it as it's developing and get there before the ball is thrown. It's all it's too late at that point, uh, unless, you know, you're, you're able just to make a block or miss or just overpower him or something like that. But typically it's too late at that point. So um, we know Suggs was a guy who we appreciated for years, <laughs> so many years, who could just see that thing before it all developed. It's like he knew the play, <laughs> right? And, and be in a position to knock the ball away or pick it off or tackle the guy for a loss. Uh, so we were really spoiled by that. But yeah, you're right. Uh, that That's something that um, we would miss if, if they're not able to retain Judon. And that's discussions for another day. It's, it makes me a little sad to think about that being a possibility. But hey, they're, they're in the thick of a, of a race about to be in the thick of a race. And that that's, that's where I want to focus. You know, it's a, it's, it's sad for me to put off this discussion because Suggs the sorcerer would be a great topic for a short, except it would be a long this off season to talk through all the things he could do. I, we saw some things in this game and I thought number 55 for the giants, and I forget what his name is, but he had 
an undercut to take out two pullers on the same play. And I immediately thought of Terrell Suggs. It's like, this is who he is. I don't remember that guy's name either, but as I was rewatching the game, preparing for this, it was almost like that was his mission in this game. He had one where he took out powers too, and he flipped him. He somersaulted him. And it's almost like he was in there on like a seek and destroy mission, just attack pullers and take them out. Uh, Cause he did it a couple of times, even on some pass plays where it was play action, where they're pulling, you know, a lineman just kind of sell the play, sell the run action but it was really a pass play and took some guys out on that too. So I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> He's in there to do like one thing. He's David Mayo. He's a 27 year old sixth round pick from, let me get this right. The Texas state Bobcats. And so he's been in the league for five years. I, I didn't really know anything about him during that time. Played three years at Carolina, two years for the Giants. But uh, uh, he's one of the guys who came up on the on the Know Your Foe show. But that that play to to you know basically undermine that counter play so effectively that really stuck out as you know boy. I first of all I, I didn't I didn't know that it was legal to do that, but the fact he got away with it makes it legal, right? There you go. All right, enough on him. Uh, you got another player you want to talk about? Let's see. I would probably say I know we've 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 got D line in there, we've got corner in there, but I don't think that I can really go away uh, from the D line at this point. Um, I'll talk about Yannick because I think Yannick has kind of been a little bit of a polarizing kind of topic since he's come. Uh, people not probably crazy uh, about the sack production. Probably were expecting more, um, but I think he's a guy who you can look at it a couple different ways. I definitely think that he creates pressure. Mm-hmm. I think you see that, right? He's maybe not getting home all the time. I think he had at least one play in that Giants game. Was so, and we see we're saying this every game, so close, right, to knocking the ball out of out of Daniel Jones' hand, right? He's going, he's wrapping around. Jones is just starting to kind of th- start the motion back, and he just misses the ball. I think that happened against the Cowboys. May have happened against the Browns too. So he's been really close on a lot of these. So he's creating pressure. But I think the thing that he does that sometimes goes unappreciated is you have to account for him in different ways as an offense. And sometimes people think, oh, no, I know what that means. They're going to chip him, right? They're going to chip him with a tight end or running back. Well, sometimes it means that. Sometimes it's just body presence. They just align a guy there, and then that guy will release him to his route. But they align him there purposely to delay Yannick's rush, to widen Yannick's rush. That guy might not even touch him, but it's just body presence, right? So – I think he does things that alter um, how offenses operate that aren't always appreciated because they're not they're not captured by a stat, right? It's not something you can look up on PFF or anywhere and say, oh, let me say, but it affects the game. Okay, completely agree with you. And I want to talk about two things you just said. Number one is that uh, absolutely his his means of pass rushing, which is typically he has a one-armed methodology. He likes to use his left arm on the left tackle's outside shoulder, which he's remarkably strong, and he gets good push against that player, which forces the that player to continually make adjustments with his feet and body to try that will effectively fan him out far wide of the pocket. Now, that's not always a bad thing to get your tackle blocking 12 to 6, but when you're playing against the Ravens, that creates all kinds of scheme opportunities for that B-gap. So that's a, that's a really secondary value of Yannick is, boy, you can, you can rush your slot corner on that side off the B-gap. You can rush your a linebacker through that hole. You can, you can stunt somebody through there and, and get a good opportunity. Yeah. The second thing is the ability to put that second guy on him 
takes away from opposing offenses. Now, so basic football theory here. Most prevalent combination of personnel in the entire league is 11, correct? Mm-hmm. Right. They get one running back, one tight end, and three wide receivers. Those three wide receivers are not going to be lined up next to Ngakwe trying to chip him. That's just not how the NFL is played. It's going to be a tight end. Well, the Ravens automatically reverse their alignment, reverse their alignment, put Yannick on the uncovered tackle. So it's always he's a, as a rush linebacker, that's his role. And they would do it with Suggs. It's not like it's unique to Yannick, but they're they're trying to get him matched up at that on on passing downs. And so if you really want to stop Yannick with any kind of chip block, you need to start with 12 or 21 personnel. And that immediately restricts what offense you can play. It's not, you know, Yannick is coming in second and long, third down. He's, you know, he's coming in on more obvious passing situations. And if you have to go to 12 or 21 on those downs, that's a substantial concession by the offense to try and, you know, get the necessary yards for a first down. Yeah. He affects the game plan. And even though he doesn't play the run as much, You've seen him. I've seen him. And I think others have too. He's starting to play the run better. He had to play in that Giants game where I think there was a puller that came to his side. He had to kind of take that guy on. And I mean, that's not unusual. I mean, you're on the edge. You're going to take on pullers. But he made the tackle in addition to taking on the puller, which is not something you see as much. Um, and he pretty much just like drove through the guy, right? Really got good pad level, got low, just drove through the guy and still was able to tackle the ball carrier. So um, I know the sack numbers probably aren't there the way that people were expecting and maybe there's some thought like hey do we do we pay this guy or not he's still having an impact on the game it's just not showing up in terms of sex uh, it's just it, it's not going to either because he's not a guy who's on for a lot of running plays he doesn't have a good chance to accumulate totals that way but i would agree i think he's been a good a good pass rusher during his time with the ravens i think he's he's basically delivered on what they hoped he would be since they got here as a pass rusher I hope nobody was expecting J.J. Watt anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows what people were expecting. (laughs) All right. The last guy I want to talk about, I'll just wait and talk about him in the MVP voting because he's he's number one on my list. But let's talk about that now. Go three to one. Do you want to play along with me? Sure. Are we we talking about different guys or the same? (laughs) We can talk about anybody you like, but uh, who's your number three MVP in this game? Oh, boy. My number three MVP. Uh, I'm going to go with Matt Judon. Okay. All right. Big game. I, I could not put him in that class. We talked about it a little bit because of the penalties. We didn't talk about that as much. Uh, obviously, that was a little frustrating in terms of the 12 men on the field. The offsides came at a time where uh, I know he's really trying to get another safety. I know he would have loved to get a you know a great jump off the ball, but it was a, it was a bad place for it. He kind of got bailed out on that play by Clark getting a penalty on the same play at DPI. Uh, my number three guy is Chris Board. Uh, I, most of the reasons given already, he really didn't show up that much for me in coverage in this game. It was more about what he did as a pass rusher and as an unblocked pass rusher and finisher. And it was just very valuable, obviously, to the Ravens in this game. It was a, a, a key part of the second half. Absolutely. Uh, number two, I'll go back to Justin Matabike. I mean, we already talked about it. Got his first sack as a Raven. Uh, really been rushing well. Uh, for the interior the last couple of games and and doing some nice things in the run game too. So great to have that presence on the inside at that kind of three technique position. How nice is it to have a young defensive line and all the, the monsters are all over 30 now. So they're going to need to rebuild that line with youth. They drafted two guys and it looks like they got one. It's the guy we expected really on draft night, you know, talking about in Matt Abike being a, a pick that lasted, I think longer than both of us thought, right. To number 71. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, did not think he would be on the board at that point, but you just never know with the draft. And uh, I'm glad he was. Yeah. 
Very exciting. All right, my, my number two guy is Marlon Humphrey. Uh, targeted a bunch in this game, did not give up a bunch of receptions despite the, the pass interference penalty. Uh, I thought looked very good. Uh, Might have saved a touchdown with the, with the PD early on. Uh, you never know the Giant was going to catch the ball, but but he might have. Uh, otherwise, played very well using the boundary as the extra defender, I thought, in, in terms of restricting movement by the receiver there. Uh, played the ball extremely well on one completely on target deep throw where he never looked back to find it. Got up between the guy's hands, didn't get called for face guarding. That's always nice. And dislodged the football just as it came in. Yeah, I mean, look, at this point when we talked about it earlier, right, when you've got – um, your fourth corner and, and guys that you've had to sign off the street in there. Um, it's so nice to still have Marlon Humphrey, to still have that anchor in the secondary that you can count on. Uh, and the teams want to target him, then, hey, you know, look, I, I'll take my chances with Marlon. So. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. It, you, it often happens, and, you know, we pointed to Mosley. Oh, let me take care of that before he gives us a lot of trouble here. It happened to Mosley as well, too, is he was left on the field in in dime packages, and he would be the quote unquote weakest link still in coverage. So they would throw at him a lot. And you mentioned earlier, you know, you look for a linebacker, you want to match somebody up on him. You want to get a nice easy pitch and catch throw for five yards on third down. You know, that that might be a guy you go after. I, I Humphrey and Chris McAllister 2006 are two players I'm looking at as being a little similar. McAllister had a ton of penalties that year, 15 penalties. Humphrey is approaching that number right now. I don't have it right on me at the second, but it's it, they both had a lot of penalties. But it, it was also a product of being left on an island and knowing when not to get beat. And Marlon Humphrey hasn't been beat for a lot of touchdowns this year. Uh, it's it's primarily been you know throws that that have been uh, you know beaten him otherwise, but he's still be able to recover not to not to give up the score. I, He's also smart about not letting a defender, not letting an offensive player, sorry, get behind him easily. And that's where he picks up some of this pass interference and and holding. So you know you're beat and you make the hold. Yeah, yeah. And you'll take that, right? You'll you'll trade oh, yeah. that. You'll trade that all day. And um I'll I'll leave it there. I don't want to get on a soapbox about how hard it is to play D B in this league now. They won't let you do anything. But anyway, <laughs> I'll leave that. You're right. I'll leave I'll leave that there. Uh okay, I think I gotta pick one more guy. Um I'm going to go off the off the beaten path a little bit because you, you mentioned this guy, but he, he had a lighter workload than he's had. I'm going to say Derek Wolf. Uh, I like to talk about Derek Wolf because I think he does. Again, you probably can notice a theme here uh, with me. I like kind of unsung guys, right? Guys who maybe the statistics don't necessarily capture their impact uh, and their influence on the game, but it's everywhere. It's in the pass game. It's in the run game. The guy is very good at. Um, you know, sort of setting things up for other players. He makes plays himself. He's just a, a guy who so reliable. He knows where he's supposed to be. He does his job. You can count on him to do his job. And I just love those guys. I love those guys who are just the rocks out there. You know exactly what you're going to get from them every time that they're out there. They're going to make plays. They're going to help people around them make plays. And yeah, you're not going to see, you know, big sack numbers or, or other, you know, sort of stats that reflect it. But if you watch the game, and pay close attention, you, you see how important guys like him are. Very excited that they're working on a new deal with him. And I assume it would be for two years and not three, but who knows. Uh, another two years of Derek Wolf at this age, maybe even another three. You can sign me up now. I wasn't convinced about him as a run defender. Now I am. I've seen him play. He's fine. Uh, you know, And he's as advertised as a, as a stunt under player, and the Ravens can use more of those 
even though they have Campbell and they, you know, you could probably perhaps put Matabike in this class too. We'll see. Uh, I just think it's, it's, uh, you can always use a critical mass of those guys rather than just having one. Absolutely. And we've been spoiled, right, in the past with guys like Brandon Williams and Michael Pierce. Different body types now than yeah. we have right now. <laughs> yeah, very much. Uh, yeah, it's run defenders. I, see, I hear what you're saying. Um, I, my number one guy is Chuck Clark. Uh, a terrific game, and we haven't even really talked about him here. He is, as much as Derek Wolf is, you know, part of the Rock of Gibraltar for this defense, Chuck Clark is, is it. He's the defensive captain. He's the one calling all the signals, holding it together, played every snap this year. Uh, a guy has been remarkably good. Uh, he had two pressures, a quarterback hit in this game. He took down Ingram on a on a pass for zero. Uh, he had a pass interference call, but he also drew an offensive pass interference call. So that kind of evened the ledger on that. He did have an, a, a hold that was similar, very ticky-tack, unfortunately. He was in there with pressure that led to that sack plus three of boards that was the second to last Giants play of the entire game. And of course, he had the big undercut of Engram's route that was on their fourth and 19 play that ended that drive. So it contributed to drive ending plays and uh, and also had two third down plays where he stopped the player a yard short of the sticks or short of the sticks, I should say. Uh, that's a terrific day of football and and deserves to be celebrated and, and Chuck Clark's just been so good he's been on the on my list of three MVPs only a couple times this year but boy I, if I had to pick an MVP for the whole year there's only a handful of players and Clark would be one of them on my list can't go wrong with Chucky Clark definitely can't go wrong he's another guy who fits right in that category for me of guys who kind of unheralded coming into the league I want to say he was the sixth or seventh round pick um, earned his bones on special teams and it was funny to hear, uh, you know, they do those mic'd up uh, Ravens Wired um, episodes. It was interesting to hear Anthony Levine talking to Geno Stone, who I think actually got waved today. Um, but it was in the Colts game, and he was telling him, like, hey, you know who was sitting here next to me just a few years ago? That guy at 36. He was sitting right here next to me doing the same things that you're doing out there now. And he was telling Geno Stone, hey, when you're out there in the game, you don't have time for all of this thinking, right? He said, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting him. He said, run like hell and hit something. <laughs> and he said, if you do what 36 did on special teams, you can be out there on defense too. So he said, Clark was, Chuck was here with me, just like we are now. You can be that, right? If you put in the work. So love to see those kinds of guys um, earn those opportunities and, and then, you know, really get out there and, and are able to show what they're capable of. And we've heard guys, Eric Weddle, sing his praises, Earl Thomas, when he was here, yes, sing his praises. praises. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that, that, that didn't end quite the way uh, that you would have hoped this year. But in 2019, uh, when they signed him, he talked about, hey, I don't why they bring me here. This guy, you know, knows everything. So, um, yeah, I, I couldn't couldn't say enough good things about Chuck Clark. It was, it was, it was a great pick. And, you know, it, it is a sixth-round safety. And whenever Ozzy picked a sixth-round safety, it's – the next great Ravens dying back. That's what I always think. So if, if he picks that guy, and that's why I was so hopeful for Stone in part was, you know, it's a DaCosta pick, I understand, but he still understood that you can get a really good safety for that exact position who can also be a core special teamer at that point in the draft. And Chuck Clark was that, and then he blossomed into something much, much more. And I, I, we're coming up on on the end of this year. Do you think they need to try and think about extending Elliott at this point. Obviously played the whole season, hasn't, hasn't been hurt for any appreciable amount of time. He's th- done with three years. He's, he's obviously his draft pick, so he's signed for the fourth. But this would be the time if they want to get a deal early. 
Yeah, I'd like to see that happen. I think that he's played well. Um, look, I mean, it's his first year really in kind of that expanded role as a starter. It's not, it's not going to be perfect. If that was your expectation, that was unrealistic. Mm-hmm. But you want to see growth. Um, you know, you want to see him get comfortable with the defense, with making calls. And I think he's shown all of that. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that it's time to do that because we know if he takes that next step, then the price tag goes way up. Oh, yeah. Right. Way, way up. And we might be seeing that with Tyus Bowser. And <laughs> so, uh, so sometimes you 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 have to maybe, you know, get that done a little, maybe a little earlier, just a touch earlier than maybe you totally feel comfortable with. But uh, I don't know. They I, I don't think that they have a bad thing to say about him. I haven't heard anybody from the team or coaches or any yeah. even, even teammates have any bad words to say about him. Did a great job with last year with all the third year players getting signed. And it would be a shame if they didn't let kind of a positive cap situation allow for a couple more of those. Cause I think there's players who understand the COVID risk they're taking that it might be two years they have to play to get a good contract. And so they'd be willing to sign for three years right now at a discounted price. And the absolute top end of what Elliot can earn is something less than Clark. So we're not talking chart topping numbers, but we might be talking maybe 7 million for three years, including the year he's under contract next year. Which is only about what a million bucks or whatever, and then and then and then a couple more years at three million. You know, I would think that would make both sides happy, but who knows? Yeah, yeah, you 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 just never know. Um, Sometimes you know, guys see themselves differently than than the team sees them for sure. Uh, Certainly, as fans see them, so you never know. But um, he seems like a guy who really likes it here. uh, Would would want to be here, um, you know, as long as he could, and uh, hopefully they are able to work something out. All right. Well, Michael, you know, I love you. We've got an hour and 20 and we got to get to the mailbag here. Josh, we have anything? Introducing the Lowe's List for Innovation. While our aisles are filled with innovative products, we've selected our favorites just for you. Like the exclusive Whirlpool washer with industry first two in one removable agitator. We love this washer because you can customize any load. And with other smart features to streamline your laundry routine, this product is a must have for families. Shop the full Lowe's list of top picks at Lowe's.com. Lowe's, home to any budget, home to any possibility. U.S. only. Oh, yeah, we've got a few in here. Um, first up, the defense appears to be struggling. Do the numbers overall show you that the defense is struggling? And why? Do you think it's a scheme or a health issue or something else? All right, I'll start. And uh, Mike, I'm sure you're going to have things to say about this. But the the defense, in my opinion, is not struggling. And this is a uh, year of increased offense around the league. Uh, the rules seem to be favoring it. It's possible that things like COVID is having a larger impact on defenses than on offenses. And I think there's there's definitely been a, uh, you know, a, a tangible increase in the number of points. And I think your expectations for defense has to be a little bit lower right now. Yeah, I had a similar discussion with somebody earlier in the week, and um, I really tend to look at points allowed. And this person, of course, came back and told me why that's a flawed way to look at it. And I said, well, look, I'm never going to pretend to be the smartest guy out there, but um, – goal of a game on defense is to stop the other team from scoring, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to say they're fourth. They were maybe third or fourth in points allowed going into that game this week. Uh, maybe maybe, maybe it's fourth. I think they were third last year. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't think they're too far off that number. Now, you can look at other things and you can say, well, what about yardage and what about this? What about that? And, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll grant you that. I'm not, I'm not going to deny any of that. But I think all of the things that you talked about, have to be uh, considered in terms of context, right? Injuries, COVID, 
um, rules, scoring, all of that stuff has to be factored in. And again, if it's the 20 and then the conversation I had with this person, it was the reference to 2019. It's a historic season. If that's always going to be your frame of reference, everything's going to fall short. It's just the way it is. Yeah, I, I agree. And points per drive, by the way, up all over the league. So, uh, uh, but I still agree with what you're saying that for, in terms of offensively, if you're trying to get to that level, we might wait a lifetime. <laughs> all right. Um, have you seen players with tackling problems, such as Queen, who has 22 missed, missed tackles, get it fixed? Or is it something that's unfixable for Queen? Okay, I saw that question before the show, and I intended to like do some research on it. And then we finished our offensive line scoring literally about three minutes before I jumped on with you guys. So I didn't have a chance to do that. I'd like to defer that question till next week personally. But I, I can't immediately think of a guy who had big tackling problems early in his career, who got it fixed and became the most sure tackler you've ever seen. But maybe you can think of someone. No, I, I saw that too. And I, I probably should have done some research on it uh, to look at that to see if it turned around. I didn't. And here's why, because I, I thought about it sort of more broadly, like tackling, like a lot of different things in football is a skill, right? And skills can be developed. So we're looking at a guy in his first year um, in the league, starting at linebacker, a guy who only what became the starter at LSU in the middle of his last, well, not the middle, but uh, earlier on in his last year. So he didn't even start. We were having this discussion because it was back to CJ Mosley, right? And they were comparing CJ Mosley at Alabama to Patrick Queen at LSU. I'm like, you can't. CJ started a whole bunch more games. So I said, the starting point just isn't the same. So does that mean that, you know, you shouldn't be a better tackler? No. And I'm sure he knows that. You think he's not aware of that and his coaches aren't on him for that. But it's a skill that can be developed. You can improve your tracking. You can improve your angles. You can improve all the different tackling types, right? The gator tackle, the angle tackle, the buddy tackle, the heel tackle. You can work on all of that stuff. Will he work on it? Who knows, right? What do people say about Lamar and his accuracy? You can't prove that. Of course you can. It's a skill. Right. It depends on how you want to work at it and how you develop it. It can be improved. No guarantee it will, but it can be. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And I'm not going to rule out a 21 year old because last time I did that, he went to New York and decided to start catching the ball. <laughs> OK. <laughs> so, um, all right. How about uh, Judon? He seems like he gets called offsides a bunch this year and they're incredibly close on replay. Is he hurting himself because he's so good at jumping the snap? I, I kind of look at it as a cost of doing business for a great pass rusher. I, an offsides penalty is not an automatic first down. The bigger problem with offsides penalties that are not uh, neutral zone infractions or are not encroachment calls is that they can allow the offensive free play. And that's when that's when the penalty is much more serious. So I'd rather he try and jump the snap, go ahead and crash in the right tackle and knock him on his ass than jump across and have to try and jump back. Yeah, the timing of it is is interesting, too, because I remember really fighting this for one of the games. It might have been the Kansas City game. I was like, he's not offsides. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like the opposite Michael Orr effect, right? Yes. He's, he's so quick. He's so quick off the ball that it looks like it's a penalty. But it's not. It's not a penalty. <laughs> I, I knew you were going to use that name, though. <laughs> yeah, and I and look, I, I learned my lesson. Uh, I had a couple of people come back with multiple screen angles and say, look, he was clearly offside. I'm like, okay, I was wrong. But it feels like he's just so close to to really timing it uh, that, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like some of those might be a little ticky-tack, but they are what they are. 
All right. Assume we'll close it out on this one. Assuming the Ravens make the playoffs, what kind of defensive package or schemes do you think Wink is saving for the postseason debut? I've noticed he's gone pretty vanilla in the second half for the last few Well, games. not this game. But yeah, I, I think I think he'll uh he'll have something for that opponent that they've never seen before. And it'll be so much fun to see what it is. But I can't predict it, and it's good that I can't, because that's what that's what makes it good. Yeah, I don't know what he's got up his sleeve either, but I think he he lives by the uh, the Don Brown, former uh, now former defensive coordinator at Michigan mantra of solve your problems with aggression. Mm-hmm. So you're going to say what, whatever's going to happen, it's going to be done from an aggressive standpoint with Wayne. <laughs> so you can you can bet on that. Maybe the secret weapon's just health and getting the team back. That's a hard thing to count on is the problem, but yeah. All right. Well, that does it for the mailbag this week. Uh, again, get your questions in using the hashtag film study mailbag. Get all your questions in now for the offense because we will be recording that tomorrow evening. Uh, Ken, lots of stuff over on the website as normal. Defense podcast out now. Uh, article coming out later today, I assume. And then uh, later today is in Tuesday. Uh, it probably will be out Wednesday for the offensive line. We have the, we have the offensive article with Ed. Sorry, the offensive podcast with Ed Romeo uh, uh, tomorrow. That'll be terrific. Uh, he's been on the show before. We liked him. Uh, next week we have Sarah and Kyle Barber, a Baltimore beatdown, coming to join us. And then on Wednesday we have uh, uh, Coach Minnick, who is so good about the Bengals and is going to tell us now where do the Bengals go from here. All right. Well, that takes care of this week. Make sure you're going on over to filmstudybaltimore.com. Make sure you're telling people about the show, doing that five-star review on iTunes. I'll look up a couple to share on the next episode. One more thing to plug here before we go. Make sure you take a look at the gallery section. Brent Dawson is doing some terrific work that creates visualizations for a lot of things in the defensive articles, along with a lot of his own things about Lamar Jackson and how where his passes are going and, and stuff like that that you'll really enjoy. But some great visualizations there. Take the time to take a look. All right. And Michael, uh, share your Twitter once again. And if there's anything else you want to promote. At Abukari on Twitter, A-B-U-K-A-R-I. Nope, that's where you can find me. That's where I do most of my interaction. Um, nothing really else going on right now. Just ready to, to see the Ravens get in the playoffs and make a run. All right, guys. We will talk again next time. Introducing Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, blending the smooth, creamy nitro taste of Guinness with hints of coffee, chocolate, and caramel. Guinness Nitro Cold Brew Coffee Beer, your new favorite part of the day. Look for it where Guinness is sold. Must be 21 and over to purchase. Please enjoy responsibly. Diageo Beer Company, New York, New York. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch, now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture, and when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space, just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.